Welcome, everybody, to the May 2021 edition of our Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, the executive director of our nonprofit Pat Conroy Literary Center based here in beautiful Beaufort-by-the-Sea. And I'm also co-editor of the award-winning anthology, Our Prince of Scribes, Writers Remember Pat Conroy. I'm honored to welcome to our show tonight Deshaun Charles Winslow, a writer originally from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, who now makes his home in New York. Deshaun is a graduate of the prestigious Iowa Writers Workshop, and he's also earned an MA in Literature at Brooklyn College. Deshaun's debut novel, In West Mills, was first published in June 2019 by Bloomsbury and has amassed an armload of awards and accolades beyond what many debut novelists would ever dream possible. In West Mills was named winner of the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. And it was also a finalist for a long list of awards, including the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, the Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction, the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Fiction, and the William Sayarin International Prize for Writing. Deshaun's novel was also a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, in addition to appearing often on best of lists, including those from Time, USA Today, Entertainment Weekly, Southern Living, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Essence, and the Los Angeles Times. Most recently, the novel was named winner of the 2021 Willie Morris Award for Southern Fiction. Welcome to the show, Deshaun. Thanks so much for making the time tonight. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I have become a big fan of, of, of In West Mills, uh, both the novel and the fictional world, which, which continues to exist in my imagination, thanks to your extraordinary writing. And I want to uh, start off tonight by congratulating you uh, for the Willie Morris Award, which was announced fairly recently. Um, that award is given out by... Uh, Present, it's being it's, it's now being managed by the University of Mississippi's Department of Writing and Rhetoric uh, by our good friend Stephen Monroe and Susan Nicholas down. But it was an award created originally and still supported by our friends here in the Low Country, Dave and Reba Williams. Dave was a, a classmate of the writer Willie Morris, and Reba is herself a Southern-born writer. Strongly about about honoring Willie Morris's legacy as writer, as editor, as, as fine human being with this award, and it's you know it's a significant award in in, in many ways. It was for a while uh, we would often describe it as perhaps one of the most prestigious and somehow least known awards in Southern literature, even though it's now in its 13th year. But the good folks at Ole Miss and certainly Dave and Reba have put a lot of effort into making this award more widely known and it's it's become this incredibly well respected prize uh which honors Willie morris's attention to trying to get to some sense of hope and optimism in his writing even even when writing about very difficult circumstances and, and a difficult world and that's the lens through which i thought we might talk a little bit about in west mills the uh, judges for the Willie Morris Award are more or less anonymous, and I'm in the less anonymous category because everybody seems to know I'm one of the judges. Uh, so that, <laughs> that's no secret, and that's in part the way that I came to be introduced in West Mills. But I, was, I also had the very happy assignment of reviewing your novel uh, when it was re-released in paperback for the Southern Review of Books 
Uh, and I was thrilled, thrilled when uh, the panel judges selected it as the winner of this year's Willie Morris Award. And, uh, and I'm glad to see that, you know, we were far from being alone in praising your book. So uh, my question for you out of the gate is, what is it like as a debut novelist to have all of these things happen for your novel, seemingly just award after award, review after review, to, to, to take something that existed for a time in your imagination uh, and, and see it embraced by so many readers and with such positivity surrounding it now? It is a wonderful um, yet confusing feeling um, <laughs> because when it, when it happens, uh, I think for most writers, the book, you've been finished with the book for some time and you may be working on another one or you're busy teaching or whatever, and then it comes back to life <laughs> in, in a new way. Um, so it is a wonderful feeling, but but uh, it can also be like, well, where are people seeing this book? It's almost like you forget that it's available to other people. <laughs> so it is a surreal, but really, really wonderful really wonderful feeling. It really is. Here we are, you know, almost two years after the, the original publication of the book, and, and it's still circulating. It's still winning prizes. It's still a worthy topic of discussion in this way. That That's quite amazing out of the gate. Do you feel some pressure as to what your, your eventual second novel must have to live to now? A little bit of pressure, and most of that is is from myself. Um, I'm, I'm working on a, a draft of that novel now, which is it's the second draft that I'm working on, and I do tend to want to compare it to In West Mills and, and make sure that it feels the same and, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And it will to some degree because it's going to be set in the town of, of West Mills again, and some of the characters will be familiar but it is a different time period. This one is set in the 70s. It takes place in a very short span of time, uh, one month. And um, and it, it's a little bit of a mystery. So I'm doing something different with this book. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But, but yeah, to the question of pressure, I do put pressure on myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that, that is a good technique for many writers, less so for others, but I'm glad you found something <laughs> that works for you. Um, yeah. And we'll certainly circle back around to, uh, I'm very intrigued by, by what a mystery novel in, in West Mills would feel, would look like, but before we dive too much into a book not yet out, let's spend a little more time with, the, with uh, what is available. And, and what you're doing, this idea of, of of place as character, place as recurring character even, is very much in the spirit of Willie Morris as well, who kept circling mm -hmm. back around to, uh, to Yazoo, Mississippi in particular, a place of, of his youth, of, of infinite fascination for him. And of course, Faulkner with Yachna Patafa, our own Pat Conroy with various incarnations of youth. This is a, 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 an important tradition in Southern literature to, to make a world and then, and then return to it in new ways. Yes. So let's, talk a little bit about the, the creation of that world, of, of where the fictional place uh, of West Mills comes from for you. Does it, does it have a grounding in reality? Yes, it does. So I was born and raised in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and right next door to it is a small town called South Mills, North Carolina. 
and that is where my mother is from. Um, in fact, okay. South Mill is actually my first home. When my parents brought me home from the hospital, they lived in South Mills for a month or two, and then they moved next door to Elizabeth City. Um, but I modeled the town, uh, I w- modeled West Mills after South Mills. And the reason why I decided to go with a fictional title, a fictional um, town, is because I was getting a little too invested in historical research about the town, and it was pulling me away from the story. Every time I went to the county courthouse to look up some some information or even online to look up information, I found myself wanting to use it in the novel. And it had nothing to do <laughs> with the book at all. And so I said, okay, I'm going to have to change the name of it so that I will stop researching unnecessarily. Uh, so that's why I changed the name of it. And I also wanted to play with the names of streets and and that sort of thing, and um, and the whole east side, west side of the canal. I wanted to play with that as a color line, which is not so much the case in real life at all. Uh, so I I said, okay, I have to change the name of the town to um, to make it work. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do the have the people of of your actual hometown of of that region listen? to the novel in a way I mean do they do they see themselves do they see their their town in what you have written or do they see this fictional world that's kind of an homage but isn't a direct reflection of, of the world yeah. right now I did a reading in Camden County which is uh, the county where South Mills is located I did a library mm-hmm. reading there in 2019 and I had um, and everyone seemed to be really proud that I had sort of named the book after South after South <laughs> Um and that was one of the things that um most of the people who approached me to to ask for a signing or whatever mentioned. They said, You put us on the map. Even though you changed it from south to west, you still put us on the map. So I think that I think that people enjoyed enjoyed that. And no one seemed offended. No one felt that it was a misrepresentation of any sort, at least not that they mm-hmm. communicated to me. <laughs> <laughs> those, are, those are good signs that, that you yeah. got it right, or you got it right enough to, to, uh, enough. to please people <laughs> to occupy actual real estate. Yes. Right. Well, I, I wonder if you'd be open to giving us uh, a short reading so we can get a sense of, of the spirit of the novel and the language and, and the beauty of it all, and then we can dive a little more deeper into the characters. Sure, I'll just read a few pages here from the beginning. Certainly. In October of 41, Azalea Center's man told her that he was sick and tired of West Mills and of the love affair she was having with Moonshine. Azalea, everyone called her not, reminded him that she was a grown woman. Stop telling me how old you is, Pratt said. I thought maybe you forgot, not retorted. She was sitting at her kitchen table, pulling bobby pins from her copper red hair. She picked up her glass and finished what was left in it. She had barely set it on the table when Pratt picked it up and threw it against the wall. Then he packed all his clothes in the old suitcase he'd brought when he moved into her house a few years back. I'm getting out of here, he affirmed. Need some help packing? Not shot back. And she laughed. 
It wasn't the first time Pratt had packed that ragged bag. He stared at her, frowning. Drink yourself to death if that's what you want to do. Go to hell, Pratt. I'm leaving hell, he yelled. A few days later, Knott came home and found a folded note peeping out from under her door. First, she looked down at the signature. When she saw Pratt Shepard at the bottom, she took a chilled glass from her icebox, poured a drink, and sat down to read over the message. She read most of it. It said that Pratt was at his sister's house, just across the lane. Knott wasn't surprised. Pratt's sister and her two little girls were the only family he had in in West Mills. In the letter, Pratt reminded her that he still loved her, still wanted to marry her, and still wanted to start a family with her. He wrote that he would wait around for just one week. Then he was going back home to Tennessee. Well, that's where Knott stopped reading. She laughed out loud, tossed the paper onto the table, and set her glass down on it. Funny, it was usually the books she used to teach her pupils that got the wet grass. Not would be lying if she told anyone that Pratt wasn't a good man. He didn't mind hard work. He picked up after himself. He kept his body nice and clean, and he knew how to give her joy in bed. But the truth was, Pratt wasn't much fun to her otherwise. He didn't have much to talk about, and he couldn't hold his liquor to save his life. And I'm sorry. And after two drinks, he was laid out, spilling over, or both. Not like men who could match her shot for shot, keep her mind busy when they weren't drunk, and still do all the other things Pratt could do. Aside from that, her father, she called him Pa, wouldn't like Pratt. If she were ever going to be married, it would have to be to a man her Pa loved just as much as she did. Pratt's threat, came, Pratt's threat to leave West Mills couldn't come with better timing because Knott's 27th birthday was a week around the corner. When the weekend came, she walked down the lane, two houses to the left of hers, to tell her good friend, Otis Lee Loving, all about her newfound freedom. And since Knott visited him most Saturday mornings and knew that he would be in the kitchen, she didn't bother knocking. You need to go on over there and fix things up with Pratt, Otis Lee says. Otherwise, he's going to be on the next thing headed west. Otis Lee set a cup of black coffee on the table in front of Knott. His face was angry looking and peach. He didn't sit down. Just then, his wife, Pep, showed up at the table with a boiled egg and a biscuit all inside a cracked, sand-colored bowl Not wish they would throw away. Pratt can catch the next thing to hell, Not replied. Pat put a bowl, put the bowl in front of Not next to the coffee. She didn't sit down either. Not looked at them and wondered what the day's lecture would be about. Thank you. Thank you, Deshaun. That is a beautiful opening to the novel and introduces uh, not only Knott, but Otis Lee sort of powerfully and lovingly. And and the the novel is in so many ways a platonic love story between these two characters who who really seem to be counterweights, balances to each other. Would you tell us a little more about 
not uh, not only not only the fictional version, but perhaps the influences for the character as well. Yeah. So my I'll start with the with the with the real life knot. Um, she was the real life knot, whose name was Bertha Sawyer. She was the girlfriend to one of my great uncles, and she had. I thought that for years, I thought she was his wife, <laughs> but it turns out she was not his wife. They had never been married, but she was such a part of our family unit. But, but and so that's what I what I thought. But she had a drinking problem, as did my great uncle, and I think that's where they. I think that's how they bonded initially. And she never had any children. Um, and I wondered at some point around 2014, I started to think about not. She passed away when I was about 10. But I started to wonder what she may have been like if she had been, if she had been a mother or if she had been a teacher. Because she was really good with, with children, with my cousins and I. We enjoyed her, you know. And so... I decided I wanted to create this other life for not, and I just kind of let it go and let it do its own thing, sort of, and, and saw where it came, where you know how things turned out. Um, but the not and the not, the not in the novel for me is an independent woman who refuses to conform. Um, you know, life kind of throws things at her, and some of it she takes, and some of it she decides, nope, I'm not going to take that, motherhood being the main one. And she just, she has no interest in doing what people uh, want her to do, unless she also wants it for herself. But she is also tender, and she's also, uh, she has moments of vulnerability. And so I wanted to create a character who had many, you know, many dimensions, multiple dimensions, and so that's what I that's what I tried to do with not. I hope I succeeded. Uh, I would say you definitely succeeded. Perhaps you know, even over overshot the mark. Uh, I always <clears throat> talk to many readers of this novel who talked about how angry they get at not, and that's really the, the benchmark of a, a wonderful fictional character where she, he or she is so real to you that you are upset by them because you, you see who, who they might have been and, and you're angry at their, in this case, self-destructive habits, which we see with mm-hmm. quite a bit, that she's so real. You know, we want to have a genuine conversation with her. We want to have the kind of conversations that, that Otis Lee has in his big-hearted effort to try and fix her, as you say, to try and redeem her ultimately. Yeah. But these characters just come off the page in that way. Thank you. Would you tell us a, a little more? Oh, oh, thank you. Uh, would you tell us a little more about Otis Lee, perhaps his origins and how he is sort of the, the counterweight uh, to not? Sure. Otis Lee is is a mix of many many people that I know. Um, I think one of them is probably myself. <laughs> I I tend to. Um, want to, when friends come to me with some sort of problem, big or small, my sort of natural instinct is to, oh, so how can I help you with this when it may not even, when they may not even need help? And so there's a piece of me in there. But when I wrote the character of Otis Lee, I saw a little bit of my father. I saw a little bit of a friend of my mother's who inspired 
this this platonic relationship. My mother had a really close male friend. Um, he was like a he was kind of like a grandfather to me and my cousins actually. And so he is infused in there. Just so many older men from from my community, men who to church with me when I was a little when I was a little boy, and all of those men who would who would give people rides, who would give people a dollar when they needed it. Um, he's he's a he's a combo of just all those people. Yeah, he is a beautiful character too. He's he's the kind of guy you want on your side. He's he's absolutely just a good man through and through. What's mm-hmm. what's interesting as I you know as I read through the novel the second and third time, sort of knowing knowing how it ends, and I certainly won't spoil that uh, for anyone listening. But I started to realize these are two characters who have tremendous sense of confidence in who they are and mm-hmm. and not, not is right about who she is. Uh, in the end, Otis Lee isn't entirely right about, about who he is. Right. Uh, discoveries are made all the way. And it's interesting uh, to sort of re- revisit the characters in the plot of the book, knowing that information as a, as a again, third reading. I'm, yeah, I'm wondering a little bit about you know the development of that plot versus the development of of the characters, and, and let me uh, sort of framework for the question here. Point out this uh, this kind of uh, unique history I have with the Willie Morris Award. I am I am the only person ever to publish two winners of the Willie Morris Award. That was my life wow. before the, Con- the Conroy Center. So uh, Captain Clark's Headmaster's Darlings and Bryn McLean's One Good Mama Bone, both winners of the award, both published by Story River Books, which was an imprint Pat Conroy and I created together. uh, Oh, thank you. Uh, I'll accept your thanks on behalf of Catherine and Bryn, who did all the hard work, of course. Uh, But what what those novels uh, have in common and what is true of so many winners of the Willie Morris Award is that they have these fully developed, almost larger-than-life characters who really sort of took over the writing process for the writers. The writers kind of heard these voices or had these visions of who these characters were and developed them and redeveloped them. And after a while, they've been described, as the writer Lee Smith has described many times, another North Carolina writer, sort of becoming transcriptionist for the characters. They they take up residency in your imagination, and you are, are their servant. So I'm wondering, yeah. with these characters, was that your experience that you, you developed them and they told you the story, or did you have a sort of sense of where the plot was headed, and and um, made the characters do the work that was necessary for that plot? With not, I felt I had a lot of control. Um, mm-hmm. I had sort of decided that I was going to create this fictional life for her that was completely opposite from the real Knot's life, mm-hmm. but with. Otis Lee, um, it did take some time, and once he started to sort of reveal himself to me, then I said, "Oh, okay, now I see what's I see what his storyline is going to be." But I did not come to the to the computer, so to speak, with his mm-hmm. with his storyline already worked out. It really developed in a strange in a strange way, and I can't even say that I remember. Exactly. I remember moments when I thought about some some little mysteries in my own family, but I don't remember when I decided that I would apply them to him. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, mm-hmm. 
and his, you know, his journey in New York and that sort of thing, a lot of it, a lot of it just kind of came, I was just writing and his ideas were flowing. And those are those moments when I understand what other writers say when they say this, the character just sat down and told me what to type, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, it's magical when it happens, and it certainly doesn't happen to everyone with every character or every story. So right. it is pretty powerful when when you do experience it, even if you don't understand it. When you right. can look back and see that it happened. It's just remarkable. Yeah. The, the voices of these characters, but by, by, in this case, by that I mean that the dialogue just really comes to life as well. Even when you were reading that short excerpt, uh, you, you slipped into a little bit of voice acting in some of the lines, like when mm-hmm. not says Pratt can catch the next thing to hell. And when a writer mm-hmm. does that, that's always an indicator that you know the character is still alive in the writer writer's imagination, and the voice you're using isn't your own; it's it's the character's. Right. Uh, and, and there's so much amazing dialogue in this novel. So much of what the characters are really is, is reflected in what they say. So much of the book is conversations between two or three people in which much is revealed and some things are concealed. But the dialogue mm-hmm. is always beautifully authentic. Can you talk a little bit about what went into making it so? Sure. I think dialogue comes easy to me because I come from a I come from a family that is always telling stories you know mm-hmm. um, whenever we whenever we get together for holidays or whatever you know it's just people sitting around telling stories about something that recently happened or something that happened 30 years ago or 50 years ago <laughs> and so it, that came, that came to me really you know, really easily. I think that we're just, um, we come from a background of, of oral tradition. And so mm-hmm. I just, when I was writing scenes, when I needed to try to get into the way someone would spoke would speak, I would just envision maybe two people that I, that I knew, you know, um, like an aunt and my mother or myself and my mother, you know, um, mm-hmm. that's, that's, and that's the way I, that's the way I was able to, to do it. And it doesn't always go on the page perfectly the right time, the right way, obviously. But, um, after rereading the scene and I would say, well, no, I probably wouldn't say it in that order. I would probably say that first and then that, you know, and then you move it around and stuff. But, but yes, the dialogue comes just from the way I grew up hearing people talk and communicate with each other. You've got a good ear for it. You've obviously paid attention over the years and had the advantage of of hearing many wonderful storytellers' voices, I would guess. Yes. Yes. And what's reflected here. Did, Did some voices come easier for you than others? Absolutely. The, the women characters' voices, came to me much, much easier because I spent more time around women than I did me than I did men. And um that's largely because I think it was well I realized at a very young age that I was gay and I think the adults started to pick up on it as well. And quite frankly, I think the men were uncomfortable with me. And so I spent a lot of time with the women in in my family. And so those voices came 
came so so easily. Um, the male voices took took harder, took more work. The straight male characters, they were mm-hmm. more they were more work for me. <laughs> well, yeah. I would say you, you've you've honored those women of your youth in, in these voices and these characters that you've created. Such a a strong empowered group of women. This, in West Mills, really runs on the sort of matriarchal model. I mean, Otis Lee is, is, has a, a place of, of respect in the community, but it seems as though the real work is uh, by the women in the community, and, and they're keenly yeah. aware of that. Right. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, Not, who is, again, such a fascinating character. Even in that short excerpt, we got a little sense that, that she's a teacher, that she loves books, she loves reading. This is a big part of her life. We, we learn in time that this is sort of a gift from, from her father, from Pa, this introduction of writers. Uh, but one, one writer who is mentioned a few times in the course of a novel and, and to whom you have been compared in, in a few reviews as well is Charles Dickens. So I wonder if yeah. you could uh, tell us a little bit about that influence as, on you as a writer and on in West Mills in particular. Yeah. So when I was... I did an MA in English between 2011 and 2013, and I took a course. uh, It was a 19th century literature course, and we didn't read Dickens, um, but that period, reading works from that period got me interested in trying out some Dickens. And first, because I knew his novels were you know, really, really long. I said, first, I will watch a film adaptation of a book that I've never, <laughs> that I've never read, you know, and I didn't mm-hmm. want to go for the, the popular ones like Christmas Carol and, right. and all of the twists. I wanted to try something I hadn't, you know, heard of. And so mm-hmm. I watched a film adaptation of Bleak House, enjoyed it oh, and decided yeah. that, yeah. And then I decided I'm going to watch this the, I'm going to read the book now because now I want to get, I want to see everything that I missed from the film and fell in love with Bleak House. And then I read uh, The Old Curiosity Shop and just became fascinated with, by the way, Dickens uses it. Like every character is, uh, their role is important, even if they mm-hmm. only have six lines in a in a 3,000-page 3, uh, novel, that that person's six lines were very important to the plot. And I just, you know, and the layers, the layers, I mean, he could just have 10 plots going on in one novel, <laughs> and, and, you, and you, you manage to be able to keep them straight. You don't get mixed up. And so I knew I didn't want to write a novel as long as Dickens, but... I wanted to try some of that technique in the book. And and so that's where, like, Guppy comes from. You know, he comes in and he's mad and he's angry, disappears for a while, and then he comes back decades later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can definitely see that influence uh, as you as you sort of frame it up for us that way. And, and you've, uh, you've just mentioned something that we've not talked about yet, and that is the the breadth of time over which this novel unfolds. This is a span of, of 40, uh, nearly 50 years in the end, between the, the 40s and 1980s, which mm-hmm. gives you the opportunity to work with multiple generations of characters and, yeah. and to, uh, to sort of see the town change. 
change or, or in some ways not change over that period of time as well. Right, right. At, at what point did you decide you wanted to tackle a timeline on, on this scale? Um, I want to say that was probably like in the second draft of the book. So the, the book started off as a short story. It was a, like a long form short mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And it started with not already as an older woman woman with her. She already had grown children, already had uh, young adult grandchildren. And most of that story was in flashback. And so when I decided that I was going to expand it as a novel, then I ran into this problem of, well, what? how do I fill it out? And I could only, I could only come up with the idea to just start from the beginning and tell it in a linear fashion with her as a young woman and how her children came to be at all, you know? And, and so that's what I decided to do, but it, but I had a dilemma because I didn't want, I again, didn't want to write a very long novel. So I knew that I was going to have to take some, some big leaps in time and I was afraid about that because I said, okay, if I'm going to be skipping decades, people are going to want to know what happened in that decade that I skipped. And so I just I stayed, I stuck to my guns. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these leaps, but I'm going to try to make the landing pad, so to speak, of where the reader lands 10 years later, make something big happen so that they don't wonder so much what happened in between. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a it's a nice technique. It works well because when when these transitions happen, you know we're we're sort of parachuted into a big moment, as as you say, and and are immediately grounded in, in where we are at that moment of time. So mm-hmm. we don't pay quite so much attention to to what we may have just uh, slipped through. Uh, but we you've mentioned in the short story that uh, you were already going to to focus on not, uh, by that point, adult children. It's not really had a moment to introduce who those are in the novel. So would you right. tell us a little bit about where uh, Fran and Eunice come from? Yeah. Um, so Fran and Eunice are, they, so they're, where I grew up, a lot of people had like half siblings. I have <laughs> lots of half half siblings. My father was married three times, and so mm-hmm. I am I am born of the third marriage, and so I wanted to do something with that. But most of the time, when people have half siblings, the cases in which I'm familiar, um, it's mostly uh, they have they share a father. You know, mm-hmm. and right. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to to have these two half sisters who share a mother, <laughs> um, and but but are not raised by her. So that's where you know Fran and Eunice sort of that's where the idea of them came from. Um, and I wanted them to be very different from each other, having been both been raised by two sets, sets of adoptive parents. Um, I wanted, and having different fathers, I wanted them to be very different from each other, class-wise, personality-wise, all of it. Yeah. And and they are, certainly, uh, but they have much in common as well. They do. They're lovely. They they have some 
common threads that become very important to the story as well. But you do sort of give them different uh, socioeconomic positions, different class positions uh, in, in within the community as well. So they have sort of different, different parallel but different upbringings. Yeah, which tells us quite a lot about not just them as families and which are adopted, but about the way the town operates, the way West Mills operates as well. Absolutely. Among the things they have in common in the end is a love interest. And that brings us to, uh, to Otis Lee's son, Breezy, who is a really interesting character in his, uh, in his only childness and, and how that manifests and sort of who he yeah. is uh, uh, by the time he, he is uh, drawn to these sisters. Will you tell us a little bit more about Breezy? Sure. Breezy is essentially a spoiled brat. <laughs> he, you know, he has the only child syndrome. He he gets everything he he wants. Um, you know, for from the, throughout his childhood and young adult life, and he he is in love with these two women, and they just happen to be sisters. <laughs> and he, you know, he marries one, but he continues to be with the other. Um, I wanted him to, what I wanted to do with Breezy is I wanted him to be a naughty man, but not an awful man. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why I, it was important to me that he be a good father or, you know, or at least be in the lives of all three of his children, even though they, they are from two different women. Um, and that he's not abusive, and that he has some work ethic. Uh, he's, you know, he's obviously not the breadwinner in his marriage, but uh, I, I didn't want him to be like a deadbeat. I just want him to be a spoiled brat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to have to, and and to, and for someone to tell him that, whether it fixes him or not, I just wanted someone to tell him that he's a brat and make him realize that. So, which I. <laughs> I think a few people tell in, in the in the novel. Word does get to breezy in time. Yeah, uh, I would yeah. So it, it is a nice balance you strike with his character that that there is a you know, we sort of understand how he becomes the person he is. You, you do this really interesting thing where uh, where breezy always wants and is indeed accustomed to getting two of anything uh, because mm-hmm. he's an only child and there are no siblings to divide these things up up amongst. So, uh, you know, it sort of seems organic uh, from that background that this is a man who does fall in love with two women, almost equally in his way. Right. Well, all of this is going on, uh, you know, through multiple generations of of folks in West Hills. You know, the world is kind of unfolding in its way, too, from the 1940s to the 1980s. Big things, transformative things are happening in America and across the globe. But not all of them seem to have much of an impact on in West Mills. The, you know, the civil rights movement never really seems to come knocking on the door in, in right. West Mills. Uh, and I'm wondering about your choice to do that, to sort of keep the world isolated and in some ways uh, pure from the goings-on of the larger universe. What led to that? Yeah, I, I it goes back to that whole dilemma of not wanting to get too sucked into research mm-hmm. um, because 
one of my writing instructors uh, during the MFA at Iowa, Ethan Kanan, yeah. told us one mm-hmm. time, he said, you want to do research, but then don't use it. And he said, what will happen is that um, the research you've done will kind of come out organically as you write instead of with you having a notebook next to you. And he advised us, he said, when you're researching, make sure that you're researching because you actually need to know a thing and not because you're actually procrastinating from writing. (laughs) And and so I really took that to heart, and I did not want to get bogged down with things that were happening in the outside world um, because I I know myself and I would have felt obligated to use it in a very direct way. Uh, so I wanted the town, the people of West Mills to be mostly self-sufficient, mostly mostly even unaware of what's going on in the big world, uh, in, the, in the wider world, outside of what they catch on a headline on a newspaper or, or somebody passing through mentioning something. But also um, my mom and my my dad was 10 years older than my mom, but my mom would have been a teenager during during the civil rights uh, movement, and she never shared with me any marches or anything that happened. Of course, there were incidents of racism in South mm-hmm. Mills, um, but they they were the sort of ones that happened everywhere, so they didn't make news, you know. And and I don't think. I think that South Mills was just one of those towns where people lived, I don't want to say that there was perfect harmony, but people understood how things were. And so they just, and black people just largely didn't fight. And I think that's the reason why um, my mother doesn't have stories to tell me about marches and, or, or um, riots and that sort of thing, because they just really didn't happen. They happened in, in other cities and stuff. And so I wanted to be true to that. And I didn't want to drop in some sort of incident just because, oh, it's the 60s. I have to make a riot happen here. You know, mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to do that. To me, it just felt forced. Mm-hmm. Well said, first of all. And, um, and... But what you have to say about research, I think, is an important lesson that that uh, a lot of readers need to learn because it's an easy rabbit hole to go down and, and sort of never come out again. Yeah. Because <laughs> writers are you know fascinated by stories and by curiosities, and our world is filled with those, and that's what research sort of leads you to. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you're straying farther and farther from the story you wanted to tell into uh, stories that don't necessarily relate to that as well. Uh, right. but, but I think... The, the framework of trying to create a place that is a character, that, that is more than setting, that really has a, a heartbeat, metaphorically speaking, to itself, means you, you as writer get to decide what does and doesn't happen in West Mills, or perhaps West Mills is real to you as, as not, and, and Otis Lee are sort of decided for you what was and, and wasn't going to happen there. But right. even if, if the, the world doesn't come to West Mills, I'm wondering what West Mills has to teach us about the world. I'm thinking specifically of something that, uh, that Dora Welty said, one place understood helps us understand all places better. I might be paraphrasing mm. slightly. But, you know, but this idea that 
if we can immerse ourselves into a writer or an artist's vision of a place, uh, if that story is well told, if that place is fully rendered for us, it has something to teach us about other places, about every place. Right. Is that true of West Mills? Does, does this community have something to teach us about the larger world? I think so. And I, I think what that might be, and, and this won't be a, you know, a fully formed answer, but I think what West, a town like West Mills could teach the, the wider world is that there's always a community around, even if you don't know people very well. Um, there are always other people around who are paying attention, who care at least a little bit. And um, yeah, I think that's what it, I think that's what it has taught me at least. Um, When I was writing the book, I was in Iowa, but I had come to Iowa from New York City. And I was realizing that as I was writing the book, I wasn't only thinking about people in South Mills, North Carolina. I was also thinking about people in my building, my former building Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. And even Mm -hmm. though I may have only known three of my neighbor's names, um, they, there was a little sense of community where we knew if someone was banging on their door, we would say somebody was knocking on your door earlier for a long time, (laughs) you know, Um, (laughs) and we just knew that the right thing to do was to mention that just in case it was important or if something wasn't right about it. And so anyway, it just taught me that a small town, you can find a small town in a big city, you know, just the the Mm -hmm. community just seems to be there. Yeah. Long answer, but (laughs) But a good one, too, and again, one, one that sort of echoes the themes of the Willie Morris Award. This, this is uh, very much the sense of, of hope and optimism and community that uh, that the judges are, are tasked with looking for in, in these novels, and, and we found it you know, uh, robustly so in, in your work as well. And it sort of makes me think about conversations I've had on this podcast before with other writers on a sort of a slightly different lens, talking about uh, you know, the difficulties uh, that we had as a society through the pandemic, through, through ongoing conversations about race and, in, and equality and inclusion, that there is uh, sort of embedded in the American spirit this push toward heroism, right? We're, we're going to rush into the burning shed to save the puppy, or we're going to do the Heimlich maneuver if we see someone choking. Or we're going to show up with a chainsaw when a tree falls in the neighbor's yard. But, yeah. but the, the real work of change is done over a longer period of time and in smaller, more nuanced ways. And within the, within the framework of in West Mills, it's the way the town, the community, rises up to raise these two daughters that Nod has to, yeah. to, to fold them into the community and take up the rearing of these children when, when their mother clearly is not capable or interested in doing that. That is, mm-hmm. that is the, the way this town cares for people. And that's a, that's a beautiful lesson that's folded in here as well. My parents um, did foster care. My mother still does foster care on shorter term basis now. Um, but my mother told me that her grandmother also used to take in children for short periods of time when mm-hmm. their parents were, were down. She, my great-grandmother would take in 
kids for a month or so, you know, and and I guess it's kind of just been passed passed down. <laughs> um, <laughs> what you know, and I think it's it it seems to be like a sense of um, not. I think it's. I mean, a lot of it is, of course, love and humanity, but I think there's also this sense of obligation where you know if you see someone in need of course you help them if you have if you have the means and um i think that's something that maybe now in the in the you know in the 21st century maybe we don't you know we don't uh practice that as much in certain in certain parts of the world because that you know we don't have the means as much all all the time but um i really admire and respect that sense of obligation that comes along with that sense of love of helping thy neighbor. I really do. Indeed. I wish we saw more of it in the world. It comes from uh, from a place of empathy that often seems to be missing yeah. in so much of our lives now. But it, but it is very much present uh, in West Mills. Uh, I want to uh, raise maybe one more one more question about the novel and then uh, circle back around to something we started off talking about earlier. And then that's sort of what you're working on now and, and how to, how to return to this place in a, in a new way. The, the novel has quite a bit to say about truth in, in the big sense and truth telling and, and the obligation comes with, with knowledge, with knowing something about someone else that maybe they don't know and, and mm-hmm. feel that they need to know because there, there are big secrets in West Mills and some people know these things and others don't. And, you know, uh, revelations are made over time. And I'm wondering what, what you're really trying to tell us about, about the weight of truth without giving any spoilers away, of course, but, but, you know, who has the right to tell other people's other people about themselves? Let's make that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that what I'm the I think the message that ends up coming out of in West Mills where secrets are concerned is that people should not tell other people's secrets unless they feel it affects them. And I think that Pep I think when Pep when Pep uh breaks confidence I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's because she feels that she has to do it to protect her son. Um mm-hmm. and it doesn't doesn't work obviously, but I think yeah. you know, and so I think um I think that's sort of my feeling on secrets that in, in most cases, if it's not your secret, then don't tell it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you feel absolutely threatened by it, you know, um, then, then, then think about it and then get mm-hmm. real and one day, you know, and make sure, um, but people don't always make those decisions with a lot of thought <laughs> as we see in the novel. <laughs> we yeah. do uh, what, what we see time and again, both, both with the revelations of secrets and, and indeed, you know, uh, page after page is that actions have consequences. Actions yeah. and inactions both have consequences in the world of the novel because that's true in our lived experiences as well. Sometimes right. it takes these characters a while to learn learn their lessons, as we certainly see with Not, who's perfectly capable yeah. of, of repeating mistake time and time again. <laughs> right. And uh, and ends up with some very 
high cost for that in the end. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. But, but uh, as we said at the onset, uh, this is very much a platonic love story. It has quite a lot to say about the possibility of two people having having a love that, that spans multiple decades, and yet there's not a hint of, of romantic interest between Otis Lee and not. That, that's not the nature of the relationship at all. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it is a very loving and very supporting one, nonetheless. Right. Right, absolutely. It's almost like um, it's like a sibling relationship. Um, in fact, I kind of thought of them a lot as as siblings, older brother, mm-hmm. younger mm-hmm. sister. That's you know that's a lot how, but he does he does love her. He loves her a lot, um, and she is a replacement. I think she, you know, she's his pet project. He what he wanted to do for his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's projecting it on to not and and his mother, you know, or the woman he believes is his mother. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, family is a very loaded world word uh, in in this novel. It's complicated, uh, so that you know that he would seek out a sort of found family relationship with not one which becomes right. a real family relationship, of course, by by virtue of their uh, their kids and the, and the marriages yeah. that happen there. Uh, yeah, you know the, this is this novel has quite a lot to tell us about family, both in in a literal and, and figurative sense. Well. Absolutely. So, what's going to happen next in in West Mills? What what really uh, what kind of characters might we see new or returning in the novel that you're working on? What what are you willing to share with us about that? Sure. So, in the novel, in the next novel, Eunice Breezy and their son, Leroy, they are somewhat central to this next novel. And everyone else will, actually, I won't say they're central. They just play a, they play a big role. Um, but all of the other characters are completely, they're completely new. Not in Valley make a, a very brief cameo. And um, this novel has a lot to do with uh, homophobia and socioeconomic class. And there's, um, I turned the notch up on racial issues. Um, again, it's set in the 70s, so it's more, uh, it's, it's not like a civil rights type of thing, but a, a more mm-hmm. subtle um, more subtle race, racism, you know. And but there is a murder. There's a murder that happens, and everyone's trying to figure out. Everyone except the police <laughs> is trying to figure <laughs> out who did it. <laughs> the police don't care. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like a wonderful return in West Mills <laughs> and, and new terrain for you as well. Sort of building yes. powerfully on on the framework that you've built already. Is this is this so. a place you plan on returning to in multiple books? Or are there going to be third and fourth novels set in West Mills? I I have an idea for a third book. I haven't started it all yet, but I do think that it will that it will um, it will be set in West Mills. But in terms of it'll start there, but mm-hmm. I don't know that it will spin the whole 
fan of the novel. I don't know that the characters, at least the main characters, I don't know that they will stay in West Mills. This book mm-hmm. may be a migration book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think I'm going to leave West Mills alone. I think after that, that may be the last one. Or maybe I'll do a thing because I lived in New York for now since 2003 with a break from Iowa. Um, but I, you know, I have experience from my New York time that I want to mm-hmm. try to use. So maybe I'll do a thing where a book is set in New York, but the protagonist is from West Mills or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, mm-hmm. I think I want to, I want to change things up a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mr. Conroy used to say that, that what he always hoped from a writer uh, was that the writer would give him a world, and, and I think you very much do that, with, which doesn't mean it's the only world your writing can ever take place in, or, or certainly it's out there, but you, you've yeah. given us a gift with this novel and with these characters, and, and I'm so grateful for that and, and for the conversation we got to have tonight. We're running out of time here. So, uh, Deshaun, I want to say thank you so much uh, for this uh, for this interview tonight and congratulate you again on, on all the awards, all the accolades, all the attention so well-deserved for your first thank novel you. West Mills. Thank you. Do you have a website uh, or social media where folks can go and, and, and follow you and keep track of what's going on? Yes, my website is DeshaunCharlesWinslow.com. And my Instagram is my whole name, Deshaun Charles Winslow, (laughs) all together. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I encourage people to go and and learn more about what you do so well and uh, to find out when future novels are coming out from you. And I will be back. Thank you, Deshaun. Thank you. Uh, I will be back here on our Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast on June 23rd with USA Today bestselling novelist Colleen Oakley, a good friend to us in the country, talking about Colleen's new novel, The Invisible Husband of Frick Island, which has quite a lot to say about grief and fame and who gets to tell the story, a topic that uh, we addressed a little bit tonight and have on other shows as well. So again, Deshaun, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody out there listening to the show. Good night.